A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, here we are, the Tennis Podcast team. Myself, Catherine Whitaker, David Law, Matt Roberts, all in attendance on... A beautiful spring day with the French Open at Roland Garros 2019, just a couple of weeks around the corner, already knee-deep in the clay court season, a clay court season where Rafael Nadal will be hoping to go for Roland Garros title number 12. Of course, he won number 11, La Onzima, as some people don't really call it anymore. <laughs> at Roland Garros 2018, of course, he won his 11th Monte Carlo title, 11th Barcelona title as well. He is, I think, you wouldn't get much dispute about him being the king of clay, the greatest clay court player of all time. You might remember that a couple of years back, David and I did a Roger Federer special after he won his eighth Wimbledon. David has um, quite a well of memories from his 45 years All of, right. of watching tennis. Matt Roberts seems to have an even bigger well of memories despite being about 19 years old, <laughs> which is pretty extraordinary. Um, so we're going to do the same for Rafael Nadal. Who knows if he'll win title number 12 um, in a couple of weeks' time or four weeks' time, but he's certainly one of the favourites. He's in the mix, as Matt might say. Yes. And uh, Matt's been delving into the research archives, into the life of Rafael Nadal and we're just going to talk you through the coming of age, the we're, we're all of it, all yeah. of it, aren't we? We're going to yeah. start from the beginning. We're going to start in 1986, a vintage year for births. If I, if I, if I, 1986 is a good vintage. Yeah, I mean, I thought 13 years before I think that it was peaked good. in February that year. But anyway, we'll take you back to June the third. 1986, Matt, take it away. Yes, Rafael Nadal is born into a sporting family. One of his uncles is Miguel Angel Nadal, who goes on to play 200 times for Barcelona and many appearances for the national team as well in football. And another one of his uncles is Tony, who will go on to be his coach. Now, Tony is a significant figure because, aged eight, Nadal wins an under-12 regional tournament playing what my research tells me was with double-handed forehands and backhands and then Monica Seller style and 
at the time, no one was really doing that that successfully. And Tony said, you're not going to be the first. You need to play left-handed. So I think the first point of discussion here would be how big of a decision was that by Uncle Tony to encourage Rafael to play left-handed? Would Nadal have had the career he's had were he not? left-handed yeah I'd say it's pretty pretty enormous moment really for 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 Nadal because I think it's his left-handedness that has made him so potent I'm not saying he couldn't have had a majestic career without being left-handed but I think that that is what has caused Roger Federer so much difficulty over the time with that looping bouncing spitting um angled forehand into the backhand of Federer up high and and look um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think his coach and mentor, Carlos Moya, he's always said that he feels it's it's really crucial. Isn't it the reverse for Moya? He is naturally left-handed but plays right-handed, um, right? I which, I, which I believe is a bit of a regret of his because that seems sort of counterintuitive. I mean, that it's generally considered an advantage in tennis to be left-handed. So why would you nullify that advantage by making himself righty but anyway he says he says watching Rafa I think makes him wish that he'd stuck with being a lefty so I'm not going to be arguing with Carlos Moya and Nadal still plays golf right-handed which is I think he does everything well, right-handed doesn't there's he? an interview I read in the New York Times from 2009 where Nadal says anything that requires feeling he does with his right hand so the implication is that his tennis well, like is stroking an animal for example, or sending a text. But tennis, he, because apparently the power with Nadal, Tony thought, was concentrated on his left-hand side. So his tennis is all about the power from the left. Whereas, And that's actually apparently why he has a little bit of difficulty with the serve, because they think that the serve is more about feel and coordination, and that, that's why Nadal doesn't smash down a first serve that you might expect that he does. I find that extraordinary, mm. given how wonderful his touches at the net i mean mm. it, it doesn't feel like it's compromised in any way does it and what's his feel like with his right hand <laughs> <laughs> well, well they, what, they, what they always say is that he essentially has two forehands mm. don't they because when he when he hits the backhand there's so much right arm in it that it, it's it, you're playing two rafael nadal forehands that's fearsome yeah and you know nadal's biggest rival certainly early on will go on to be federer and Nadal's game, you think, is kind of engineered to stop Federer in a way, but would it be if he was right-handed? I don't think so. It's all to do with the angle that that forehand and that serve goes into Federer's backhand for years. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would mm. agree. I'm not going to argue with, with someone that's done this much research anyway. <laughs> what else you got, Matt? Okay, so July 1998, age 12... Nadal competes in the Spanish under-14 national championship. So he's playing two age levels up, and he finishes as the runner-up. And he's the first 12-year-old to achieve this feat. So just a glimpse there into how good he was young. Um, and he also gives his first inter- first TV interview on Spanish television, which you can actually watch on YouTube if you punch 12-year-old Nadal into the search bar. And it's fascinating. His mannerisms are exactly the same when he's being interviewed. He hasn't got any of the ticks when he plays, but his mannerisms when he's interviewed are all exactly the same. I very much recommend going to go and watch that. None of the ticks when he plays. No, mm, isn't that when, interesting? Yeah, how you develop 
Did they? Did the? T- I mean, this might be in the timeline, but did the ticks come one at a time, or was there a sort of avalanche of ticks? I, I mean, it's. I felt as though from the very start they were talking points. Mm. We were we were yeah. noting them. I don't remember them with my own eyes, but I remember them being a part of conversation pretty much from the start. Yeah, he's always done the water bottle thing, hasn't mm. he? For as long as I can remember. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember him not doing it. 12's early to start with interviews, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Now, a year later, February 1999, Nadal is still 12, and he loses to a young French boy called Richard Gasquet at uh, Le Petitsard, which is sort of the European equivalent of the more well-known Orange Bowl, uh, held in Tarbes in France. And again, you can watch some of that on YouTube, the final game, and, yeah, Gasquet wins, and... But it's worth noting that Nadal goes on to have a 16-0 head-to-head record against so he Gasquet. got his loss out of the way early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. Um, but that tournament is, a. I mean, if you look down the winners and runners-up, you know, Nadal won it the following year, and then Mandy Murray was the runner-up the year after. So this is fascinating to look at the past winners of that event. And I'm sure if you went back and, and watched that final, you'd probably predict similar levels of success for Gasquet and Nadal. Mm. You'd probably predict Richard Gasquet to have as good a career as Nadal, if not better. The, it's one of the great fascinations, isn't it, whenever you walk around a junior tournament at a slam, is trying to pick out the champion. And I remember seeing the professional debut of Richard Gasquet in Monte Carlo. I was in Monte Carlo in 2002, the following year. And I remember hearing a couple of weeks later about Nadal for the first time, who was actually named... In, in all the orders of play, Rafael Nadal Pereira. Mm. That was that was how he was he was listed, and Gasquet was all flourishes as we, as we know him to be. But you you would not have believed at that age that he would not have reached a Grand Slam final, for instance, uh, by the time he's in his thirties, which he now is. And when you first saw Nadal, you, like you say, you really wouldn't have been able to pick much difference between them. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, give Richard Gasquet the brain, the mental fortitude of Rafael Nadal, and and maybe we we would be doing a a different uh, tribute <laughs> podcast just now. But that's just it, isn't it? I read a really interesting um, article a week or so ago about how misunderstood mentality and mental strength is. You know, we talk about talent purely in terms of the physical and the technical, but mental strength mental abilities are a talent as well some people just aren't mentally gifted in the in the ways that you require for tennis you know you could probably argue that Nick Kyrgios isn't he's just not able to apply himself week in week out he's he's doesn't compute does it in his head Mm -hmm. and that's a talent as much as you know hitting a dream backhand like Richard Gasquet can do and I don't. I'm not sure there's ever been anyone as mentally talented as Rafael Nadal. Possibly not even close, actually. Mm. So 2001, people are kind of waking up to Rafael Nadal. One of those people is Pat Cash, because he visits Mallorca for a clay court exhibition with Boris Becker, who withdraws due to an injury. Um, so Cash agrees to play the 14-year-old local lad called Rafael Nadal and uh, loses. Yeah, he actually came on the podcast as Pat five years ago and told us this story, and I was listening to it on the way down here. He said he he was running everything down, smashing winners, and he said said people in the crowd were laughing 
because of the size of this kid. He said, so in the second set, I thought, I better pull my socks up here. He said, I chipped and charged, served and volleyed and won the second set 6-1. So it went to a match tiebreak. And he said, 999,000 times out of a million, uh, a kid like that would choke. He didn't. He won it. I went into the locker room afterwards and all the other players, all the other champions were laughing. And they, were saying, they were saying, it's so embarrassing. You, you look like you tried as well. <laughs> Which is a big faux pas on the Champions Tour. <laughs> yeah, uh, and actually, uh, that, that, same, uh, that same year is when he played his first professional match against a guy called Guillermo Platel in Madrid, who turns 40 next month and who reached a career high of 594 and won career prize money of $24,000. Uh, so as paths diverge from uh, the very starting point of Nadal's career... That guy is dining out on the fact that he <laughs> played Rafael Nadal in his first professional. He's probably yeah. telling that story as we speak <laughs> at a <laughs> dinner party And he won somewhere. games as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it, moving on, Matt. And it was April 29th, 2002, when Nadal won his first ATP-level match, and that was in Mallorca. So, I mean, that is... 17 years ago. Yeah. Against a you know a guy who reached what 80 well he he beat He was world number 81 at the time. Yeah, the Delgado. lesser known Delgado. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, lesser known in this country because Jamie Delgado's obviously coached Andy Murray, but Ramon Delgado was I think he was about 56 in the world at his peak. Um but yeah, he got beaten by a 15-year-old. Uh, yeah, and Nadal was only the ninth player in the Open era to win a match before his 16th birthday. And as you just said a few moments ago, David, Gasquet had actually achieved the same feat a few weeks earlier in Monte Carlo. Mm. So just how neck and neck they were at that time. I'm not sure Gasquet is going to enjoy much of the rest of this podcast, though, is he? <laughs> I think he's just tuned out. <laughs> um, what I think is quite interesting next is in 2002, Nadal reaches the semi-final of Junior Wimbledon. Um, and actually then the following year, in 2003... He has to miss the French Open with an elbow injury. But on his main draw debut at Wimbledon in the men's event, he becomes the youngest man to reach the third round since Boris Becker had done it in 1984. And Nadal, you know, claimed a good scalp in Mario Angic in his first match. So I mean, it indicates that early really, success. I mean, that is an incredible scalp. Angic, really. who had beaten Roger Federer in round one the previous year. Correct. Yeah. My mm. first, my, that was my centre court debut. Yes. I remember you telling me that. Um, but I, I was working that event, 2003. And, and, of course, let's not forget, that's the year that Roger Federer won his first Grand Slam title as well. But I'd heard of Nadal the previous year, just seeing him in the draw. Earlier that year in 2003, he'd also beaten Albert Costa, who was the French Open champion in Monte Carlo. And you, you did see that result and you thought, OK, I don't think Costa's at his best. I think he wasn't 100% fit. But even so... It really did get your attention. But when he played Ancic, Ancic was one of the favourites to go really deep in, at Wimbledon. He'd got a natural grass court game. And I remember just watching the, the scores tick over. And I think it, it was a couple of tie breaks, but it was a straight sets win for, for Nadal. And I went out courtside just to have a little look. And I don't really remember too much about Nadal's game. What I remember was the look on Ancic's face as he was trying to impose himself. And he just couldn't. He could not get the ball past this kid often enough. And, and he was shell-shocked. You, you know how sometimes you see a player like um, 
Chilich came into Wimbledon last year expecting to be a real contender for the title, and, and it's it's just this look of and then uh, along I, comes Guido Pella. In his case, it's I really didn't expect that to happen. You can you can tell on their face because they've they've got the pedigree, they've done stuff, and Ancic had was in that position, and Nadal is a, basically a child at this point, and he and he's he's doing it on grass, so it was it was really noticeable. And he couldn't do any interviews with us afterwards because he couldn't speak English at that time. Mm. Wow. I remember requesting Was he still him. Nadal Pereira at that point? Or I can't remember. I, I think he probably wasn't by then. But I remember us in, asking for an interview and we couldn't get one because he couldn't <laughs> speak English at that point. So many Spanish players pretend they can't speak English to get out of doing interviews. He could have spent his whole career doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness he didn't. Thank goodness he didn't, yeah. So at the end of that year, he's handed the ATP Newcomer of the Year award and he finishes ranked four, number 49 with a few challenger titles. And then it's, the, it's early 2004 where he has his first really big moment. Um, 17-year-old Rafael Nadal, this is on March the 28th, 2004, and he beats world number one Roger Federer 6-3, 6-3 in Miami. And so and, it begins. And this is, the, this is the first few lines of the Guardian match report. Nadal's performance was spectacular. He struck the ball with a remarkable sense of freedom and hit forehands with such colossal pace and spin that they reared up and lurched forward unpredictably. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a brilliant report, isn't it, when you consider how portentous that ends up being. Um, And, yeah, I, I think that that... I think... Federer probably would have shrugged that off as just an anomaly at the time and and not worried about it too much. But I remember thinking a few times after when they would play each other, expecting things to change around dramatically, whether it be on the surface or or Federer learning. Because, you know, he had that great record, Federer, of beating players who'd beaten him. He would always, you know, take it personally and, and go out there and just destroy them next time around. And he couldn't do that to Nadal. Hmm. And, I mean, just to give you some context of how, you know, what brilliant form Federer was in at the time, that was his first defeat on an outdoor hard court that year. He'd already won the Australian Open, Dubai and Indian Wells. And he'd also had to play Nadal in doubles at Indian Wells and lost that as well. Yeah. So their actual first meeting was on a doubles court, Nadal and Federer. It just, just shows how quickly Nadal was on Federer's case, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it was 2004 was a year when, you know, Federer getting his service broken <laughs> felt like it created earthquakes through the tennis world. You know, Federer losing a set was just, it just didn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I remember that specific match. I, I only remember it in passing. I mm. think I, I, I just saw the score change. And, and, and because, as Matt said, it, it felt like a blip. Or mm. did you say that? Somebody said that. Yeah. Very they, well done, whoever said it. It did. <laughs> And I think most people remember the one the following year in Miami, which which we'll get to, which was when Nadal led by two sets to love. Um, but anyway, in that, that 2004 season, Nadal actually had to miss pretty much the whole clay court swing yes. because of a, a stress fracture in his left ankle. And that's that's interesting as well because the amazing thing people often say about Nadal is how young he was when he broke through at the French Open. Well... He might have been able to do it a year before if he'd had the fitness. Yeah. I mean, he might not have been quite ready to Which a, win a, the French Open. A but. lot of comparisons are often made between him and Becker. And Becker won at 17 in 85. But a year before, I think he was probably through to the third or the fourth round and he had to pull out mid-match injured 
and and the similar sort of feeling of, of this guy who was just physically way ahead of his years. Um, I, I remember seeing later that year uh, Roddick against Nadal at the US Open, and I was really excited. You know, I'd, I'd seen Nadal in bits and bobs and. Uh, and, and ex- expected this to be an absolute classic. Roddick thumped him six love six three six four, including one serve at about 145 miles an hour, straight at his chest, and it smashed into him. And it really felt like Roddick was out there to just intimidate him. And look, you're in front of my crowd here, mate. You know, get lost. And later that year, and, and Roddick was on our podcast at, uh, at the end of 2014, and he told the story. He said he said he was. I can't tell you how different it was playing him at the end of the same year. I mean, it was the biggest crowd on record, 27,000 fans in the Davis Cup final. Bear in mind, what, what is Nadal still 16, 17, something like that? 17. And, and he, he, he's playing Roddick, who was world number two at the time. I was watching this on YouTube the other day. And Roddick is, again, I mean, he, he's clearly not a natural on clay. We know that. But he was trying to take it to him, and he won the first set on a tiebreak. And yet Nadal still came back and beat him. I think that just shows you what a big match temperament he had right there. Sorry, he was, he was actually 18 at the time. But yeah, the youngest player to register a singles victory in a Davis Cup final for a winning nation. And Roddick was number two in the world at the time. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It, it, I mean, hang on. It, it says here that he won... What year was this? That he, Was it that year that he won... 11 titles that was that, that's then the next season right so so he, he ends the 2004 season he's 18 he's beaten Andy Roddick in the Davis Cup final and Spain have won the Davis Cup and then 2005 over the course of the season Nadal improves his ranking from 51 to number two winning 11 titles which is which was joint with Federer and 79 matches which was second to Federer's 81 Nine of those titles come on clay, including the French Open on his debut as he beat Federer in the semi-finals on his 19th birthday and then Mariano Puerta in the final. Incidentally, Puerta was handed an eight-year doping ban after testing, testing positive for a banned stimulant after his final defeat. So even a, even a drugged-up Puerta <laughs> could not beat Nadal. And I mean, early in, in 2005 is when... I think I think I was aware of obviously aware of that Davis Cup match. I watched it, but then he, at the Australian Open at the start of that year, he beat Leighton Hewitt, or Leighton Hewitt beat him rather in five sets. But and Hewitt eventually reached the final. But it was third round, and Hewitt had to dig so deep in front of his own fans against this guy. And I think it was the first time I remember watching the match and thinking, I don't think I've ever seen Hewitt come up against somebody who wants it as much as he does and is prepared to just go to war in the way that Hewitt does with everybody. And it, it was really shocking to, to, to watch this and see, in the end, Nadal get edged out. But you knew what was coming. You, you, you felt like it did. And then when he, he actually ended up winning back-to-back titles in South America, Nadal, on clay at the start of that year. And I, I remember being at a, a Champions event with John McEnroe and, 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 and saying, I think, Rafael Nadal's going to win the French Open. Honestly, I did. Honestly, I did. Oh, David. Yeah. Absolutely unverifiable brag. <laughs> I was going to say, your predictions game was peaked in 2005. <laughs> I mean, and he, Repeat, he gave, unverifiable. Uh, the look that McEnroe gave me. I mean, because, you know... There was, Have you brought that up with him since? No. 
<laughs> I mean, it is totally unverifiable. But I, and I, look, I, I had no evidence other than that you don't win these things like that unless you're special on, on clay. How can... Okay, no, I, don't, I probably didn't say he's going to win it. I, pro, I just said, I mean, how good is he going to be? I think he could do anything on the surface. Um, and he, I think McEnroe, the gist of what he said was, well, you know, not yet, is, is the sensible reaction to, to that conversation. But then later in that year, in Rome... Uh, he played back-to-back matches, Nadal, against Guillermo Correa, one in Monte Carlo and then the final in Rome. And the final in Rome was five hours and 14 minutes, right? And, I th- and it was the match that is responsible for the best-of-five set finals being <laughs> removed from the tour. Um, they, they played one more year of it because there was that incredible final against Federer the following year in Rome, which was also five hours plus. But that was the moment that they decided... We can't, we can't carry on putting these players through this because Correa was never the same again. We, we barely heard of him again after that match. I, I, it seemed to ruin him um, yeah, as an that athlete. Pl- combined with the, the French Open final of 2003, where he lost from two sets love up against Gas- Gaudio. He couldn't, he couldn't take another hit after that, could he? <laughs> mm. 04. 04 it 04. was, yeah, in a, the French Open. That's right, Correa. And, and I, I was oh, yeah, in... Was um, the, the Tim Henman years. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I, I was in um, Rome that year that that, uh, that Nadal beat Correa. And I mean, he really just edged him out. Correa was a brilliant player, mm. such a talent. But I, it was the first time I'd ever been to a Rafael Nadal press conference. And I, I went into this, this thing just, I, I mean... Really? So, he's, so he's, he's speaking English by this point? Well, this is the thing. I was really curious. Given that I'd asked for an interview with him a couple of years before and he said no, I was just curious to see what he's like. And in he comes, after five and a quarter hours, with a bowl of pasta in his hands, <laughs> right? In fact, two bowls of pasta. Plonk them down on the, on the desk. You know what he's like. He's, he doesn't worry about these things. And he just started shoveling this pasta into his mouth whilst answering questions. And, I mean, and he could... Honestly, he could barely make himself understood between his pidgin English and the fact that he was also eating pasta at the same time. <laughs> I mean, look, it's understandable. The guy was out on his feet. Um, but what he had was that ability to communicate with his body language. He was just likable. He, he had the whole room in his hands because he was all raised eyebrows and you know you didn't need to know what he what he was acting the words he was saying he, you could tell Doesn't what he work meant. well on the radio that day no probably not <laughs> <laughs> which is what i was there for um but no he couldn't he couldn't speak much english at that time but it was it was incredible the speed with which he picked it up and i, I believe he actually went to english lessons as well shortly after that and, and and picked it up very quickly he won 24 consecutive matches that clay court season wow as a teenager, yeah, <laughs> it, and um, and his eleven titles broke Mats Valander's previous teenage record of nine. So he was he was doing things that had never been done. And when he won the French Open, there was a there's a quote from Mary Carillo, um, really, and they're asked, you know, they were wondering, you know, how good how good can this guy be? How many French Opens can you know can he win? And Mary said, um, if you want consistency, you have to have fitness and his body has to be as passionate as his heart and his mind. And I mean, how sort of on the money was that? Because injuries had plagued Nadal up to that point. You know, we talked about how he had to skip the 2004 season. But then on, he was never injured during the clay court swing and and he always had that fitness during the clay court swing. And early on, it was... 
it was noted that if anything was going to hold him back, it was his own body, but it didn't on clay mm. anyway. Yeah. Um, another thing from that season that's quite funny is Nadal won the Golden Bagel Award. Do you know about this? this is, no, this, this I've is never a, heard of that This one. is a thing, apparently, that the ATP awarded between 2004 and 2013 that honoured players who handed out the most bagels. I mean, it's basically just count up the number and, I don't know, give them a bagel, I suppose, but I think <laughs> they just bring that back. It's, yeah, that sounds like um, the Razzies that they hold the day before the Oscars yes. for all the rubbishest films of the year. <laughs> do they give a... Do they give a, a a wooden spoon to the loser of the, the Golden most. Bagel Award, good, yeah, which would be David versus Carlos Bernardes. <laughs> I'd have had three right there. <laughs> but interestingly, the winners of that award were basically Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. But the two, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah. But two people who did win it: David Ferrer won it one year, and Robin Sudling. Wow! So there's some Golden Bagel trivia that no one needed. Did not know that. Niche trivia. Um, (laughs) He's not known as Stat Matt Roberts for nothing. (laughs) Wow! Uh, So moving on to 2006. Now again, we're still in the Roger Federer peak years, and Nadal is one of only two players in the whole season to actually beat Federer. Federer went 92 and five that year. Four of the defeats were to Nadal. Yeah. Who was the fifth? Andy Andy Murray in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, and Nadal beat Federer in Dubai in a hard-court final and then again in Monte Carlo, Rome, and once again Roland Garros. Um, and this is when Nadal's real streak on clay kind of just goes into overdrive um, and he breaks Guillermo Villas' 29-year male record of 53 consecutive clay court match wins. And his streak, Nadal's, Nadal's will eventually reach 81 <laughs> in a row. Oh, God. I, I, okay, can I take back my <laughs> can I add 53? Extra gasp. <laughs> goodness, yeah. Yeah, wow. which is, to no one's surprise, an open-era record for consecutive wins on a single surface. And that, I mean, that may well, never that, go. It, surely. I mean, that's probably the first of a few records we're going to talk about that might never go. Mm. You can't... You, you can't... You can never say never in sport, but it's hard to see it. It's, it's really record. hard to see it. Uh, and that was the year as well. I mean, I mentioned that he played that five-hour, five-minute epic with Federer in the Rome final. And I, I think that that's when Federer must have just been thinking, well, I, what do I have to do? And then he played him in the... the and this happened a couple of times. I think he felt like he got him, mm. you know, and he played him in the semis of, of running Garros that year and... Or was it the final? I can't remember. 2006, the final. Final. and Because um, I remember a photo shoot of the two of them together. And it was really nice to see. They obviously got on, et cetera, et cetera. But on the court, he couldn't he couldn't live with this guy on, on, on a clay court. And, and that was the first year as well that um, Nadal played at Queen's. Uh, I remember him coming to Queen's the first time I'd ever seen him up close. Um, and, one, and that was the first time I'd seen what he's like in a locker room before a match, which... To this day, I've never seen anything like it in a, in a tennis environment. He he prepares... I can only compare it to how when you see the backstage video from a world title boxing match. Nadal is in the locker room and he has to have a lot of space around him because he is he's doing pogo jumps up and down. He is hurtling down the corridor and and screeching to a stop and and he's got his headphones on he's listening to music and it's it's like he's about to go and fight somebody 
just pumping himself up and people are just having to get out of his way because he will not come over like Skittles. He's obviously still doing it because last year at the French Open he hit his head, didn't he, on, right. a, on a ceiling doing a pogo jump. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Looked quite nasty at the time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we, we're, we're racing forward. But, but on, on the actual surface of grass, his game still was... He was still getting used to it, wasn't it? Because the year before, he'd played his first Wimbledon. He'd lost to Gilles Muller in the first round. Um, but then he just gradually started to work it out. I think he got to the quarterfinals that year in, in 06 at Queen's, and then he ended up reaching the Wimbledon final, didn't he? He did, yeah. And I think he lost the first set six love to Federer in that yeah. Wimbledon final. So... It was, it was, it was, a, and it was Federer's first chance to play Nadal on grass. Um, you know, he'd, he'd he'd played him on clay, and just he'd taken so many losses. He finally had a chance to get him on grass. Um, and yeah, Nadal ends that season as the world number two, and we're starting to get we're starting to get better results on other surfaces. Two thousand and five was very clay heavy, but now the results are coming on other surfaces with a Wimbledon final as well. Um, 2007 is notable because he wins Indian Wells the first time. So there's a title on big title on hardcore, and it's his first title actually since Roland Garros in 2006. There'd been a quite a stretch there where he hadn't won a title, and then on May 2nd, which is my birthday, he he um, plays the Battle. How old of, were you? Uh, Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Sickening. He plays the Battle of the Surfaces exhibition match against Federer, which, as a concept, I think oh, is yeah. one of the coolest things it's that's one the, happened. One of the tennis. great pictures, isn't it, mm. to watch Federer and Natal on a clay and a grass court at the same time. And they were having to change shoes, a different change of ends, because you have to wear different shoes on grass and clay. It, it was divided across the net mm. rather than divided down the... Yeah, the centre service line. Yeah, it was divided. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm fairly sure Nadal won it seven six in the third. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the time, Federer had won 48 straight matches on grass and was undefeated in five years, and Nadal had won 72 straight wins on clay and was what undefeated in three years. Brilliant <laughs> idea that was. Such a good idea. Why didn't they it's do? Brilliant. Why aren't we still doing that? I want, to, I want a tournament that. that's half clay. Why isn't there a Wimbledon Garros? That <laughs> yeah. is both yeah. of them. Anyway, uh, by Make the way, so. there was a, that was the year. I, I, I was in Hamburg mm. that year watching courtside when Federer played Nadal in the this final. Is like, this is your life of David Law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just old, Catherine, so hence why I was at all these things. Um, and... Uh, normal service resumed, 6-2 first set to Nadal... And then Federer just blitzed him for the rest of the match. I think he lost one game for the rest of the match. And it really felt significant at the time. It's the first time Federer had ever beaten him on clay. And we were all going into running Garros thinking, this is the moment. This is the moment that Federer has, has turned this rivalry on its head. And you could tell that Federer thought that too, that he, he now would have his chance to, to win the French Open. But it was totally different once he actually got there. Mm. And it's interesting, in these kind of um, summaries so far, my notes kind of run out after Roland Garros. It's kind of like Nadal didn't do a huge amount at the rest of the season after that. And it, I always found that really interesting with Roland Garros because you, get that, you always got that sense that something was shifting at Roland Garros. Nadal was 
separating himself from the rest of the field because he was just winning it so easily. But then he was never quite able to sustain that for the rest of the season. So it almost felt like... Certainly not beyond Wimbledon. Yeah. Yeah. So it almost felt like Roland Garros was this really defining moment. Now, okay, now we're going to get the Nadal dominance. Oh, no, actually, it's just the Nadal dominance on clay again, and it's happening again. It kind of felt like Nadal was just doing what he was supposed to be doing at the French Open, but you you can't take it for granted because he was I think that unbelievable. Irri- that's irritated him over the years. Mm. The assumption from all of us that yeah, well, Nadal will win the French Open, won't he? Mm. And because he obviously knows what it takes. Well, he said um, c- a couple of nights ago. We we're recording this just after Madrid heading into Rome. He said after his loss in the semi-finals of Madrid to Sitsipas, he said, "This is normal." What yeah. I've been doing for the last 14 years, that's not normal. Yeah. Losing matches like this, close matches to other great players, that's normal. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So, and, and actually, although obviously Roland Garros will always get his headlines, uh, he was gradually building on grass and the other surfaces, wasn't he? Because you mentioned that 6 one that he lost the six-love first set, ended up losing it in four 07, he took him all the way. He took Federer to five sets. And Federer wasn't getting that close on on Mm. play. Um, And I remember an absolutely distraught Nadal after that 07 final. I do too. I watched that match on Henman Hill. That was my second year as a ball store assistant at Wimbledon. (laughs) Were you good? Just sort of an adult ball girl. (laughs) (laughs) I was. I was promoted to head ball store assistant that year. Well done. Um, Yeah, it was a job that mostly involved heavy lifting, but uh, the ball store manager insisted on only employing young women um but uh, yeah it was my first glimpse into i mean yeah i was just collecting tennis balls in a bin bag um and distributing the balls to the the ball kids would come to the the little office uh to collect their sort of tube their cylinder uh of of tennis balls um a cylinder containing other miniature cylinders of tennis balls to take to the take to the court, and um, uh, I mean, it, it was a it was a very perfunctory job, but obviously at the time I thought I was absolutely living the dream, <laughs> and I got and I yeah I thought getting to watch that match meters away uh, on a, on a big screen inside the grounds of Wimbledon, I thought that was the biggest treat in the world, in- and I do I remember how devastated he was. Yeah, he was Just, in tears in yeah. the locker room. Because he thought, he thought he'd got him, and mm. he hadn't quite. Uh, obviously, he would come on to do exactly that. But it was interesting that he kind of conquered Wimbledon and the grass before he conquered US Open and the hard courts. Mm. And maybe, as you say, it's because of so much going into that first half of the year, particularly those three or four months. Yeah. So if we move on to the 2008 season, this is... Probably his most iconic season, I would say. Um, actually, he begins it with his heaviest ever defeat. I thought it was quite funny. Six love, six one to Mikhail Yuzny in the Chennai final. Did Yuzny did um, not win the Golden Bagel that year? <laughs> <laughs> he needed one more, and it was that second set. So does that mean that Nadal's never been double or triple bagel then? Yeah. Must do. Um, yeah. Unlike Kazmova. He should um, <laughs> play Carlos Bernardes if he's in trouble then. <laughs> Um, so again, we're in the situation where Nadal's first title is Monte Carlo, and that's his first title since July of the previous year. 
and then at Roland Garros, Nadal becomes the fifth man to win a Grand Slam without losing a set. And in the final, he hands Federer his first bagel since 1999 and gives him four games. 6-3, six, 6-1, six, six love. Was that 1999 bagel the one year he played Queen's? Federer's? Was it against yes. Byron ba- Black? Uh, it's love and three, and Byron Black. It was! <laughs> It was. Good memory, Catherine, yeah. He's not been back. <laughs> and then the Halle years began. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, that is, you're absolutely right. Um, but Byron that, Black's dining out on that still, isn't he? <laughs> that, uh, that Roland Garros final was chastening for Federer. I don't think he thought that he was capable of being beaten that heavily. Particularly, I mean, he was still, you know, he was still world number one. And he wasn't even close. It was... It was it was a mullering from, from Nadal and it was quite uncomfortable to watch in a way because he's so merciless and relentless and he just keeps on coming at you and Federer looked old in that match. It's, ex- <laughs> it's extraordinary <laughs> to think. 11 years ago. I know, yeah. I know, but that's how he looked. He looked like he hadn't got it anymore and um, or, or at that level. He, it, was, it was truly shocking. I mean, they both look embarrassed to me when I watch that footage because Nadal has always said that he kind of sees Federer as the greatest, um, certainly in that period. And he was kind of almost, I think, a bit embarrassed to have just eviscerated the guy. And then Federer was obviously embarrassed to have, you know, barely won a game. Um, and then Nadal does something utterly remarkable. He goes straight to Queens. The day after. The day after. There was no week off well, then. I remember the day he arrived. And Me too. He, he arrived... The, as you say, the day after, and it was raining. And he said to our groundsman, who was coming the other way with all the other players because the rain's coming down, he said, I need to go and practice. And Graham Kimpton, the groundsman, said, well, Rafa, you know, you can't practice on a grass court in this sort of weather. And he said, no, please, I have to practice right now. And so he got all the ground stuff out. And he basically, Nadal was off. He just went marching off with his bag, and we'd better follow him and get him a net up, sharpish. And, and he did, and he practised for half an hour in the rain, rain coming down. Uh, and he ended up winning the title. He beat Ivo Karlovic in three tie breaks on the way. Uh, he beat Andy Roddick, I think, in the semis. And then he beat Novak Djokovic in two amazing sets in the final. And it did feel, it did feel like... I didn't know whether he would win Wimbledon that year because it was still Federer. But, but it felt like he's ready now. Yeah, it felt... If ever it's going to happen, yeah. it's now, and so so it proved. Yeah, I mean, would you? Is that? I mean, the Wimbledon final against Federer that year barely needs any introduction. But is that the best match you've ever seen? Yeah, I would say so. Why? Because it had. I mean, the quality of the tennis. It's one of those where you can almost forget how good it was unless you go back and watch it mm. um, all the way through as well. The fact that it had the swings of Nadal, who's never won Wimbledon, who win, who gets a two sets to love advantage, and Federer, who's won what the last five at that point, starts coming back at him, takes it into a fifth, and then you have them both playing more or less at the peak of their powers and just coming up with the most astonishing winners off the back foot under pressure. Um, and I, I think it's one of the one of the, it's the only time I've ever seen Nadal truly choke in a match for a short period of time. He did completely wobble, B 
being on the precipice of, of his, his biggest victory, really. Um, and yet he still managed to find a way to win, which I don't know. And given the darkness and everything else that went into it, I can't imagine a better scene. And that it was the unique um, year for, for Centre Court, mm. where they were mid-construction of, of the roof, so they'd taken off the upper upper ring, and it was exposed, wasn't it? It was Centre Court exposed in a way that... So they were literally unique. You know, you could never... You literally could never, ever recreate the conditions well, that's it, for that match. The next year they had the roof, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and... <sighs> I love how much he wanted to win Wimbledon. You know, that was still when clay quarters were saying grass is for cows. And here is the ultimate clay quarter saying that he wanted to win Wimbledon more than anything else and always had. Wimbledon was always the most prized, most coveted trophy for him. And and that's amazing because he would have grown up with the with the grasses for cows, you know, the the, the Sergi Brugueras and the like, just not fancying it at all, basically yeah. giving up on the grass court season or maybe even not playing it at all. I mean, his his mentor throughout his teenage years was Carlos Moyer, who didn't give up on the, the no, I mean, grass, but it decent, didn't. But he never contended for it. And, I think. and never, never believed or thought, no. I can do anything on mm. this surface. I it think was... the, other, the other thing is, Nadal, all this time, was still world number two. Mm. He basically spent about three years at world number two. And, and that's I think, feeds into what you were saying about him viewing Federer as the greatest ever. That was always there, wasn't it? That number didn't matter how many... He won 81 matches in a row on a surface, <laughs> and he still wasn't world number one. But... Winning Wimbledon and then what followed was was what got him there. Yeah, because that year he did something that Roger Federer still hasn't mm. done. Olympic and still, I, I think I think that I, I mean I don't think Roger Federer has ever kept up at night by anything. But if it is something, and that's winning singles gold at it's the that. Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he he did that beating Fernando Gonzalez in the final, did Nadal, and that was just after he had dethroned Federer as the, um, as the world number one. As you said, David, Federer spent 237 consecutive weeks as world number one. A good chunk of those with Nadal right behind him at number two. And I just think Nadal's willingness to adapt his game is just something that separates him from all the other, all the other Spanish players for sure of that era. And even, you know, kind of separates him from kind of Federer and Djokovic as well. Obviously, they, they all make subtle adjustments, but Nadal had to make really quite big adjustments to get used to the grass, and he's still adjusting his game. We talked about the Australian Open, how he's tinkering with his serve. More than anyone, Nadal is kind of always looking for that edge, that little extra that mm. he can just squeeze out. And actually, that's what all of those guys do have done over the course of their careers, is react to each other. Yeah. And, right, OK... That's the yardstick, is it? That's what I've got to get past. I'll find a way. And and Nadal, that's what Nadal is for me. He, he's about rivalry because um, you know you could m- maybe make a case that he's he's the most important player out of all these guys because without Nadal, Federer might have won eleven Grand Slams in a row. I mean, he lost. He won eight. I think he won eight out of eleven, and the three lost were to Nadal. And I mean, that would have kind of 
not broken tennis, but there wouldn't have been anywhere near the same level of interest that was then garnered because he had a rival, because he had Nadal. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello tennis podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So then if we go into 2009, Nadal um, then goes to the Australian Open and he beats Fernando Verdasco and Roger Federer in back-to-back five setters to win his first hardcore Grand Slam title. Um, and made Federer cry. Made Federer cry. I can't do this anymore. What was it's something he said, me. didn't he? It's killing me, that's it, yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, the match against Verdasco was arguably even better. Um, yeah, that was, what, that was one of the ones, wasn't it? And that, that I mean, it's amazing, A, to think he's not won the Australian Open title since... Mm. Um, you, you'd certainly at that point have. I mean, he hadn't won the U.S. Open at, at that point. You'd have thought, given you know he'd he'd had his first spell of tendonitis in his knee at the back end of the previous season. You'd have thought if uh, if he's ever going to dominate a hard court slam, it'll be the one at the start of the year, not at the one yeah. not the one at the end of it. So I, I, we'll go on to talk about it. But I find his achievements at the U.S. Open some of some of the most significant um in the context of Nadal's career but that was a big moment for me in my appreciation of Roger Federer as a human being because that was still back in the day when you and I David used to argue about my feelings for Roger Federer my inability to relate to him I just found him too impenetrable too superhuman too too dominant I, I I I didn't feel like he. I, I I never doubted for a second how much he wanted it, but I, I I'm not sure I really felt that he needed it. And then I I saw Nadal make him cry in that 
ceremony and I, I felt it. I felt it and I understood him on a human level in a, in a way I hadn't previously. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a big moment for both of them, I yeah. think, and a big moment in their rivalry. And then there's a huge moment of that year, clay court season 2009, when Nadal for the first time loses at Roland Garros, beaten by Robin Soderling in four sets. Nadal had actually beaten Soderling 6-1, 6-love in Rome a few weeks earlier, but he lost this match to Soderling. And for me, that was kind of like that was kind of like the superhero in the action movie who always survives not making it to the end. You know, that was Jack Bauer not dying in 24 or Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. This guy, he always wins the French Open. How has he been beaten? I was following live scores on my phone and I I rebooted my phone because I thought yeah. it wasn't working. <laughs> and then when I realised it was, when the score still came up as the same... I just, I, I, I think I was having a picnic or something. I, I just ran to find a telly. I went to a pub with a with a telly on and made them put it on because I could <laughs> I, not well, it believe it. Middle weekend or bank holiday Monday, mm. something like that. I think that is the biggest upset in tennis history for me. Uh, I can't think of a bigger one for, uh, for him to lose at Roland Garros for the first time. I mean, and people- bear in mind, we're talking about. Five years, yeah, and he had never lost at the place. Yeah, I mean, people will point to ones with sort of bigger ranking discrepancy, but just Nadal's Nadal didn't lose at Roland Garros. He, 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 he basically was invincible. I mean, he wasn't because that does a disservice to what he was able to do. But yeah, just staggering. The knees were playing him up then, yeah. weren't they? Uh, yeah. And that's not to take anything away from Soddling, who just went for it. And, and I remember for the rest of the next year, he seemed to be able to explain to people how he'd done it. And then, of course, he played Nadal in the final the next year and lost to him, which made you feel, OK, there was something up with Nadal as well then that day. I think the conditions, too, I think it was a damp day, mm-hmm. which I think suited Soddling, whereas the final the year later was baking hot and... And actually, of course, 09, that's the year that it opened the door for Federer mm. to finally win the French Open. Can you imagine where we'd be now in the tennis universe if Soderling hadn't beaten Nadal yeah. that day? Because you can only assume, with all due respect to Federer, you know, the likelihood is that Nadal would have beaten Federer again. W- would Federer have a French Open? Yeah, Probably not. Quite possible. The only thing is those <laughs> knees, because I think he then pulled out of the grass, didn't yeah. he? He and, and and he was in really bad way for for a while. Couldn't defend his Wimbledon title. But but at, at the time it was kind of a thing. Well, is this going to be this? You know, is this Soddling? Has he found the formula to beat Nadal? It, in hindsight, it's hitting really hard. In hindsight, it actually just brings into focus how extraordinary it was to be able to beat him because Nadal then won the next five French Opens. Um, so I think maybe we should slightly skip ahead to. 2010 and in particular the US Open which is where Nadal completes the career Grand Slam Um, also that year he'd won the French Open and Wimbledon back to back for a second time which was an extraordinary feat Um, but at the US Open he became the youngest male player to complete the career Grand Slam winning the title only dropping one set yeah and that was the moment wasn't it where you just thought anything is possible for this guy now and maybe maybe we could even be talking about this guy being the greatest mm. of all time i mean we've subsequently had to 
revise that conversation to include Djokovic too. And we're still sitting here with, as we speak to you, Federer on 20 slams, uh, Nadal on 17, and Novak Djokovic on 15, and it's still very much up in the air. But Nadal being able to win on something other than clay, which he proved on the grass, but then to be able to do it, as Catherine said, on the fastest of the hard courts, a surface that caused his knees so many problems, that was a monumental feat. And at that time, it's positioning in the calendar. You know, as as you were saying earlier, it didn't look like he had the sort of body and style of game that could last for a full mm. season. Um, and especially as, you know, 2010 was, it, it was after the onset of his... Of his knee troubles, you know. At this point, he's he's playing in pain, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he, he as as long ago as that, he was he was just managing managing injuries, you know, playing in different degrees of pain every day. And that was the year where, he, you know, we talked about adjustments. That was the year where he started bombing down first serves and really just taking over points with his forehand. Yeah, um, that was a a, a real technical adjustment mm. based on surface requirement wasn't it um and and really interesting to see somebody that great prepared to go back to the drawing board a little bit now at the end of the year he has another big win snatching the stefan edberg sportsmanship award from roger federer that is almost the, the biggest win of them all <laughs> i mean it's how he's only left leaving his career with one of those is—has is, is he got another one? He, he got it. Didn't he get it last year? I think, I think. he is might. Is that not the yeah. biggest upset in tennis yeah. history? <laughs> now, Federer not winning. Twenty eleven is the rise of Djokovic into Djokovic, and <laughs> bad sentence, but you know what I mean. And he beats Nadal that year in six finals. He beats him in Indian Wells, Miami. Okay, hard courts. Then he goes and beats him on Roma Madrid on the clay. Then Nadal is very pleased with Federer for beating Djokovic at the French Open. And then Nadal beats <laughs> yes. Federer. That was when uh, Federer wagged his finger in yeah, the direction of remarkable. the player box, isn't it? That, Djokovic started that season on a 43-match winning streak. Who was he wagging his finger at? I think just to the say... World. Yeah, it was just to sort of... It was like a... It was a kind of get back in your box, I haven't gone anywhere, folks. Yeah. Mm, I love a finger wag. Yeah. <laughs> and, but yeah, and because Djokovic. It's always, in, it's always in Paris, isn't it? Yes. Djokovic was absolutely taking Nadal to the cleaners every time they played, wasn't he? I mean, and this was something then, and, and okay, I think you've had a, a bit of a flash of it from Federer in the last couple of years. This. Uh, given the way he's changed his game and he's hurt Nadal. But Djokovic was the first man that could handle the game yeah. of, of Nadal. Yeah, and then he went on, he went on to beat Nadal as well in, at Wimbledon and the US Open. Um, and then, as we head into the start of the 2012 season... Was that the heavily rain-delayed US Open final? When you were sent yes. down to the players' lounge to try and get interviews. Yeah, and I ended up getting Nadal and Djokovic. Yeah, <laughs> I remember listening to that on the radio. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I remember you texting me and saying, oh God, I've been, I've been sent, <laughs> sent down to the players' lounge to, quote, see what I can get. Yeah, I've been and given of course, a hospital pass. law pulls it out of the bag. <laughs> it was, it was the next thing I know, I'm hearing the voice of Raphael. N- an interview and a rain delay. Yeah. I mean, That's this is turning into David Law, This Is Your Life, but it was, they were it was amazing. Uh, and they they just sort of, I mean, 
it wasn't like my personal relationships with them that did it because I don't think even them, they don't even know who I am. But uh, I I knew somebody who did know them, Benito charmed, Benito David. Perez Barbadillo, to name him. He who was also at the time representing Djokovic as well. And they, yeah, they were, they were bored. Honestly, they were <laughs> bored in the rain delay, and they came and had a chat about what it was like in the rain delay and what they were thinking ahead of the match, etc. Um, but yeah, th- that little trilogy of matches that they played in 10 11 and then i think again in 13 at the u.s open nadal won the first and the third djokovic won the one in the middle and again i just love the way they would just tinker with them their games or or approach it in a slightly different mindset or maybe one was in more form or physically a little bit better but it was such small margins every time and this is what i mean about nadal and rivalry i mean i think you know the the Federer-Djokovic rivalry is a great rivalry because of the contrast in styles, but it, they only really had a couple of years where they were really meeting each other in Grand Slam finals. Nadal had loads of years with Federer, and then again, loads of years with Nadal. He's the important sort of person in, in He's the rivalry. The pivot, yeah. yeah. Um, 2012 season, Nadal loses a seventh straight final to Djokovic, the longest Grand Slam final in history at the Australian Open. Oh. Five hours and 53 during the trophy ceremony. Players need chairs to avoid fainting. That was when I saw Nadal's uh, blood soaked socks Ooh. after the match. Yeah. Ouch. And this was also the year where Nadal's Wimbledon form started to nosedive. This was the Lucas Russell year. Yeah. Um, but you know, he was he was still amazing on clay, won the French Open that year, surpassing Bjorn Borg's record. That was blue clay year, wasn't it? Yeah, didn't like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> didn't like that. Likes red clay, dislikes blue clay. <laughs> <laughs> but And this is where we're really getting into injuries starting to have a big, big impact. He had to miss the US Open and the Olympics that year, Nadal. Um, he was really having to start start missing slams. And then he came back at the start of the 2013 season and put together an amazing run of form, having been injured. Um, in his first hard-court tournament for almost a year, he won Indian Wells, dropping only one set on clay. He finally lost at Monte Carlo, but he then won Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros again. And then Wimbledon, he lost to Steve Darcis. Oh, yeah. But then... At the US, in the US hardcourt swing, he became the first player since Andy Roddick to do the triple to win Canada, Cincinnati and the US Open. And he finished 2013 as the number one, having, having had to miss the Australian Open at the start of the year. just shows how incredible the rest of his season was. Um, I think only four players have done that triple. Mm, it's not Agassi, many. see Brad Oh no, Brad! No, actually, well, Brad well, Gilbert obviously didn't win the U.S. Open, but I believe he won. Pat Rafter did it. Yeah. Rafter mm. did it. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I think it's just the four of them: Roddick, Rafter, Agassi, and, and Nadal. Djokovic has done it, hasn't he? I'm not sure he has. I mean, he's won. He's, he's won, won them all, all three. But maybe not all. Maybe not I'm the not same sure year. Yeah. He's mm. done the triple. Um, 2014 begins with the Australian Open, where he again reaches the final, but has a kind of back issue in the warm-up and then loses to Wawrinka. Wawrinka, yeah. Um, And then he has some... Poor Wawrinka. I'm so glad Wawrinka went on to win other Grand Slam titles. Similar to Amelie Moresmo. Without an asterisk. Having Mm. to to win via retirement and and Nadal being the sportsman that he is would have hated that. Hated that for Wawrinka. 
And I actually think Nadal's back injury, which I think he got in the warm-up, but it worsened during the match. I actually think the worsening of it actually made that match close because Nadal was not having... He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he couldn't cope with Wawrinka's level, but suddenly that injury just changed the dynamic and Nadal was so good at just sort of hanging in the rallies and getting in Wawrinka's head. Wawrinka dropped the third set and then... I remember the crowd. He through. went off for a bit of treatment, Nadal, and the crowd mm. booed him, whistled mm. him, and it, was, it hurt him so much, that did, because he wasn't trying to cheat. It was no gamesmanship. He, he'd hurt he was trying himself. to finish the match. Yeah, he'd hurt himself, yeah. and he... I think he was really hurt by that because we were talking at the start of the podcast about his his strength of mind being a talent. I, I've never seen a player like him in that ability to just compartmentalise every single point and give it his all and, and forget the bad moments of the match and just move onwards. I don't, I've never seen anything like it. I'm not sure we ever will. Yeah. Um, I kind of think what's the all these great players where's the power source you know where what's their biggest strength and Federer kind of feels like he's got tennis in his hands he's got tennis in his fingers it kind of flows from him Djokovic it's almost his own body is his biggest strength of what he can do with it and the way he can you know be elastic and defend Murray it's almost his mind his, his tennis mind is so good and with Nadal it's it's his will and his, his heart almost it's the power source um yeah, the the debate about if you had to pick somebody to play one set yeah. of tennis for your life. I mean, Marty Fish would pick John Isner, <laughs> <laughs> but I. Why would you not pick Rafael Nadal? Because he plays every single point, like, like it's the last. Everybody's everybody in the stadium's life depends on it. Yeah, every I, I, I single mean, I'm, point. I'm sure he is great at big points, but they all seem kind of like the same mm. the way he goes about it. Yeah. Um, 2015 season starts off the back of the 2014 where he's had to undergo surgery for his appendix he's pulled out of the US hardcourt swing with a wrist injury you know injuries are really taking their toll now in 2015 Nadal's 10 year streak of winning at least one Grand Slam title ends and, that, and that's when I feel, felt like I sensed his his own fear of his own mortality as a tennis player I thought that was the beginning of the end yes. yeah well, I, I mean, we, I know we, he was only, what, 28 yeah. at the time. He but, lost his nerve, didn't he? He lost given, his forehand. Mm. It kept falling yeah, short all and, the time. And canister-wise, it felt like he'd given a career's worth yeah. up to that point. And we were starting, starting to talk about how young Bjorn Borg ended up retiring. You know, we were starting to play with those comparisons, maybe. And that, uh, that loss to, to Djokovic in the quarterfinals of the French, it... it, it it wasn't even that close. It was routine, was it? wasn't it? It was, it was routine. That, and, and that, he played when, Queens that year, and, and I remember I interviewed Tony. Yeah. Mm. And, and he, was, he was so candid about how Nadal had lost his confidence. Yes. Yeah. And it was really quite jarring to hear one of the all-time greats being described as somebody who just completely lost his way. Mm. I think Tony said something like, you know, with confidence, the ball finds the line, and without it, it misses the line. And the dial just was either missing the line or, as you said, dropping the ball so short. It was almost like fodder to a lot of these guys. Mm. Um, and he didn't win a slam, as I said. He also didn't win a Masters 1000 event. Um, and in 2016, it was better, but it still wasn't great by his standards. Um, this, was, this was the year where he finally lost a positive head-to-head record against Djokovic. Djokovic finally had enough wins to, to lead that head-to-head, and now, obviously, he leads 
both Federer and Nadal. Pe- people also started to believe they could beat him, didn't mm. they? That you know, we saw that for a while with Djokovic, that couple of year period in 2017, 2018. I know, obviously, he was injured as well. We've seen it at points for Federer. Around then, that, um, the, there's that one at the end of 2015 where he loses to Fanini mm. from two sets to love up. He then lost to Vadasco in five at the Australian Open in 2016. People felt Pui. that they could stay with him, didn't they? Pui, yeah, there you go. Another one at the end of 2016. Five set matches against Nadal, and he's lost all three of them. Mm. Unreal. But then we get 2017, and that, that throwback tournament that was... Well, we thought it was a throwback tournament. It actually... Australian Open of 2017 set the tone for the next yeah. 18 months. Started a new era. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's the thing. At the time, it felt like this wonderful little portal into yeah. tennis history. Enjoy, enjoy it while it you can. And li- it felt like we, you've just got to make the most of this moment. It felt yeah. like it was, it was almost pressure to to appreciate that tournament, that final for, for what it was, because it'll never happen again. <laughs> and how ludicrous that seems now. And 2017 was then the year of decimation, where he wins uh, the decima at Monte Carlo, see what you've done there, Barcelona, Matt. and Roland Garros, just decimating everyone while he did it. Dropping, he lost. He won Roland Garros, losing thir- 35 games, which remarkably Bjorn Borg actually managed to do it, losing 32. Um, but yeah, second fewest by a male player to win a grand slam. I, I remember when I was a kid and I, I saw the role of honour for Wimbledon and the French Open and how Bjorn Borg had won five Wimbledons and six French Opens in a row and how absurd that seemed. And all through my life, nobody did anything like that until Sampras started reeling off his number of Wimbledons. He won seven in total, three and then four. But Nadal had won his tenth French Open, <laughs> 10. And I remember Navratilova having won nine Wimbledons again. And Andy Roddick had said, he'd joke with his trainer about how when Nadal won his first couple, he's going to win eight of these. He's going to win eight French Opens. And it, <laughs> Sold him short. <laughs> and, he, yeah. and he won more than that. And he, now he's won 11. I mean, and he still might win more. I don't, I don't know how. I don't... I had, Lost for words. It's difficult to put into context, isn't it? Because yeah. it's so, it's such a sporting unicorn. Mm. It's, yeah. Um, it's, end of the 2017 season, Nadal becomes the oldest man to finish the year as number one, which I, which I think is interesting. He, he also won the US Open that year. And a lot of the talk about Federer is about kind of longevity, and but it's not really talked about so much with Nadal, but Nadal's actually got a lot of longevity records himself. Um, Nadal's been the one out of all the guys who's never dropped out of the top ten since he got into it. Um, and he's the oldest man to finish here as number one. OK, Djokovic might be able to change that in the next couple of years, perhaps. But And he'll, he'll be really proud of that top ten record as well, won't he? Because he's obsessed with the rankings. Yeah. He's obsessed with the race. You know, he's all, it, I've mentioned this a few times, you know, being being quizzed in the past about, you know, having a, 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 a relative by his high standards, poor run of results, and he'll go, but I'm still six in the race, no? <laughs> like, that's what matters here. It's that race. You know, usually they're all... With what all they've all achieved, and they've all, you know, by all I mean, sort of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, it's sort of the invoke thing to say, I'm not really looking at the rankings. 
I'm not, that's that's not my focus. Nadal is always both eyes on those rankings, always. Yeah, that's his baseline. <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure I've got that in. Yeah, right. I love it. He always knows exactly how many... I bet he could reel off the points totals at any given moment of everyone else in the top ten, I bet you. <laughs> yeah. Um, end of that year, Tony Nadal stops coaching and... Carlos Moura had already come in, and he's now the he's now the main man. Made an impact, didn't he? Mm. he, he, he Coached him from Milos Raonic. Do you remember when John McEnroe said at Wimbledon, "Just get a damn new coach," <laughs> you know, before uh, before yes. Carlos Moura came in? And I mean, I don't. I I think we, we've 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 had Col- uh, Carlos Moura on the podcast once or twice. We we know things that he's, he's on told the, him. Our first ever podcast. He wasn't. He was. Back in the day, seven years the ago. Inaugural. But that was before he took over the, the reins of Nadal. But a lot of the time you'll, you'll hear people say it's not necessarily what they say, it's who's saying it. And you could imagine as close and as much love and respect as there is between Tony and his nephew, at some point you could imagine Nadal just not wanting to hear it from him anymore. And I suspect that probably, they probably reached that point around about now. Well, it's like what we've said with yeah with Dominic Team and Gunter Bresnik recently that 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 new voice yeah. absolutely yeah um, so and I mean now you know into 2018 2019 we we kind of know the Nadal story he's he's he is struggling to complete these hard court tournaments last year he withdrew from you know tons of them um, and the only one he managed to see to see through to the finish, either not withdrawing from or retiring mid-match, was one he won in Toronto, which is the last title he won as we record this. Um, and yet, last year he was he still had the clay court dominance, but this year we're wondering whether he will win. What, well what do you think his motivations over the last few years have been? Because with Djokovic, I, I feel. Even if he doesn't say directly, I feel really strongly that for him it's about the numbers. That he wants to be able to, his way of getting the ultimate recognition will be to break all the records. And I really understand that because of who he's had to come up against and with. And because of the way the world has reacted to those two players. What is it about Nadal? Why is he still playing? He's won 17 slams, he's won untold millions, his body's often hurting. Why is he still doing this, do you think? Because he can. I don't think he requires motivations, yeah. specific enticements, specific carrots in the way that mortals do, in the way that his rivals do. I don't think he thinks about that. I think he doesn't know any other way. I can go out and compete for tennis matches, therefore, why wouldn't I? He's born why to do wouldn't that. I be doing this if I can? Yeah, I agree. What, with what, what else would I want to be doing? Yeah, I, I think he will keep tinkering with his treatment of his body and Fishing, ev- maybe. Ev- everything that he can possibly do to wring out the last tennis match in his body because yeah. he is born to compete on a tennis court he doesn't know anything else and he's just trying to delay that inevitability for as long as he possibly can yeah i don't think he thinks i'd, l- I'd like to get to that number or you know that will be enough me that's that's the target you know maybe finishing top of the race (laughs) (laughs) um but no i just don't think he functions like that i really don't i think he's a a one-off in that respect he doesn't need where tennis is concerned he doesn't need goals he just needs to be able to compete it's it's, we are we are so lucky to have been able to witness this era aren't we and 
what he has brought to to my to my viewing life of the sport is I find him really uplifting to watch just the way he carries himself, the way he just drags performances out of himself, how up how excited he gets when he's successful and just he's shown an, another level of competitiveness to me that even more than Leighton Hewitt, even more than Jimmy Connors. And when you get guys like Connors and Hewitt, neither one of whom is saying I yes he's great but there's never any, you never hear any of that both of those two recognize in him what he is how great he is and how much of a competitor even they look at him and think wow even I would have I would have been a little cowed by that yeah do you, I remember seeing John McEnroe in it must have been maybe 2009 heading out at Wimbledon for a a legends match. I think he was actually playing with his old partner Peter Fleming, wearing the three-quarter length shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I thought, even John McEnroe wants to be like Rafael Nadal. I mean, he looked a plank. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he'd probably admit that yeah. now. Yeah. But it was it was everyone wants to be Rafael Nadal, even sort of fifty-year-old John McEnroe. So. Anything yeah. else? Well, Any other we, final thoughts? Well, I mean, it, we might need to. Will we be recording an addendum in a month's time? In terms of, I mean, what would be required to record one? And what is the. What's the onzima decima? What's the 12. Do, do, doozima? Dothima. Dothima. I don't know, to be honest. No one's invented. No one's. No one, no one I've gets not that heard high. the word. No. So, what do you think he he will do from here? We're pre-French Open. I'm, basically, I'm I'm asking, will he win? Do you the, think the, the twelfth? Do you think he'll win a twelfth? Do you think he'll win another Slam other than the French? I think probably not. I think probably not, but I do think he'll he will win another French. Yeah. Yes, I think one more French. Wow. Twelve. Well, whatever happens, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to be able to cover his career hasn't it and watch yeah. it over the years um i'm sure all of you listening would think the same um and let's hope there is more to come yeah takeaway thought more mixed grass clay events <laughs> yes let's start one <laughs> it's, it's 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 really nice to do these sort of look backs because it's it's difficult to kind of view a player's career not through the sort of current prism it's kind of difficult to detach yourself from what you're thinking about Nadal at the moment but when you look at all his achievements you talk about what he's been able to do you realize that you know what he's doing at the moment he's lost three matches on clay that that is not defining Nadal Nadal's defined by what he's done in this 15 17 years that we've just talked about and you know what a player and as much as we've talked about all his his, his heart and his will and everything He's also he's also the most modern tennis player ever. You know, he's doing things that just simply wouldn't have been possible with a wooden racket. You know, yeah. all the RPMs that mm. are measured. You know, he 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 he's was pushed, the one who really pushed the boundaries, pushed the revolutions in racket technology as well. Mm. He's also the first the first tennis player that I can remember. I, I can't remember exactly when this thought was first processed in my mind he he had already achieved a lot and I and I realized 
Oh my god, he's younger than me. <laughs> he's younger than me, and he's he's doing. And he's 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 achieving all this stuff, and I'm revising for my A levels. Yeah, <laughs> and he's busy winning Grand Slams. He's blooming younger than me. Of innovation, perseverance. I always think that because he's just taken so many knockbacks on the chin and mm. just kept going back either to the drawing board to work out how to beat somebody or to work out how to come back from an injury. And uh, long may it continue. The Shakira video didn't make the. Didn't make the memories list. 2010. It just has. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.